0: Let's pray. Even now, Lord Jesus, even now, even now, for we ask this in your name, amen. God be praised. God be praised. God be praised. What a blessing, what a blessing, what a blessing. It is to be in the Lord's house on Monday night. It's Monday night and we all have a Sunday morning feeling. <laughs> Amen. Second Samuel chapter 9. Let me say something about my boy and my girl. Um, it is no secret that we love each other dearly. This is a providentially arranged relationship that has begun in time and will continue throughout eternity. Uh, Their children, um, Molly Grace and Nathan, I love them very, very much so. We look forward to Nikki's West for our annual fellowship dinner. Amen. (laughs) The the Tilford's are here. This is uh, Jane Ellen's parents. We're grateful that they're present. Stand up brother and sister Tilford, I know everyone knows you, but uh, I'm gonna see where you are. Amen, there they are, all right, the Tilford's, amen. I'm really happy to see Pastor Mike Shaw and Sister Mary Shaw sitting there like they're teenagers. No, (laughs) No space between them, that's the way it ought to be. It's good to see them. What a wonderful job you have done. And uh, you have prepared the way for this young man who will one day prepare the way for someone else. You see, we take things that are entrusted to us. We commit them to those who are faithful. And uh, we pass the baton on that the church may go up higher and higher, remembering the Lord said, this is my church. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell should not prevail against it. I'm glad to see my very, very fine student, Wes Douglas, here tonight. I told him that uh, this does not excuse him from an eight o'clock class in the morning, <laughs> amen, so glad that West is here. Now you guys have been singing about grace, in fact that's the first song you sung, we rely on your grace, so I wanna talk about the face of grace, the face, F-A-C-E, the face of grace, Second Samuel chapter nine, I want to read the uh, chapter in its entirety. Second Samuel chapter nine, hear these words from the word. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there was still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled at both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Mekir, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? The king then summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever, my lord, the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. You may be seated. For every New Testament doctrine, I am convinced that there is an Old Testament picture. For every New Testament doctrine, there is an Old Testament picture. The New Testament doctrine that is under consideration this evening is that of grace. It's that word in Titus chapter two, verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto us. That's the doctrine. But one of the greatest pictures of grace in the Old Testament is that of the one that's being considered in our text tonight. Mephibosheth, one who received grace. I teach my students, that biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. Mirrors for identity. I want us to identify tonight with someone. In fact, I'm not going to let you elude the possibility of identifying with someone tonight. Someone looks like you tonight in this particular narrative. Is it David? the dispenser of grace? Is it Mephibosheth, the recipient of grace? Is it Jonathan who, though he is dead, is the mediator of grace? Grace comes as a result of him. Biblical characters serve us as mirrors for identity. I've read to you a very familiar passage. And the worst thing you can do tonight is to say to yourself, I know this story, I've taught this story, I've preached this story, I've read this story, therefore I can put my mind on cruise control and just kind of uh, in a twilight zone, overhear what Robert Smith is saying tonight. The greatest obstacle to the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible, What keeps us from knowing more and more about the Bible is what we think we already know about the Bible. So when we read the Bible and read a story for the first time, we are, if you will, unconsciously ignorant. That doesn't mean stupid. It means you just don't know. But then when you read it over and over and over again, you become consciously ignorant. In other words, you know that there's more there. You know that God is turning the diamond of this text so that you will see a different fact, fac- facet and you become a gemologist of scripture. I hope that you'll crawl up tonight into the cranium of Yahweh, of God, and stay there long enough until the common becomes uncommon, the familiar becomes unfamiliar, the mundane becomes majestic. And the simple becomes stupendous. And you come out of it saying, sing it over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. This narrative, this passage contains a miniaturized scope of salvation history. In other words, you can look at this passage and see the unfolding of God's work of salvation in human history. It's, it's a Kodak moment of the future state of eternity. It not only tells us about a table in the 10th century BC, but a table 10 centuries later when we gather around the communion table. But it also tells us of a table in which in Revelation 19, 7, 9, 9, we will gather around the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will give glory to our God throughout ceaseless ages. So come go with me. Let's revisit that which we thought we knew that God may give us some new truths from an old text. It all began with a matter of envy. Saul, who was the king of Israel, the very first king of Israel, reigned 42 years as the king of the United States of Israel, all 12 tribes. And his song uh, topped the hit charts of music offerings for years. Saul has slain his thousands. And he liked that. But one day David came along and he did what no one else had the courage to do, the valor to do. And he fought Goliath and killed him with one stone from a slingshot and cut off his head with Goliath's own sword. And then the people began to sing in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 8 and 9, Saul has slain his thousands. But David has slain his 10,000s. And the Bible says in verse eight and particularly verse nine, that at that point, Saul began to be envious and jealous of King David. So much so that one day after he had invited him to dinner, he tried to make a wall hanging out of him and threw a javelin at him. But David was, his dexterity, his skillfulness, allowed him to, Uh, elude the javelin and escape with his own life. From that day Saul would chase him all over the country trying to kill him. Jonathan recognized by premonition or maybe by revelation that he was not going to be the heir apparent to the throne. He knew that. And so we read these words in 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 15 where Jonathan says to David his best friend David's If I die before you die, I want you to show God's kindness to my family for my sake. And sure enough, in the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel, on the mountain of Gilboa, the king is killed. Jonathan the prince, his son is killed. And the nation of Israel, their military army, It's routed. In those days, if there was someone who had an eye toward the throne, the effort was always to wipe out, not just decimate, but exterminate the entire family of the king so that there would not be any heir apparent that could claim the throne. And so we read in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, that there is a nurse that's carrying Jonathan's son. Jonathan is a son of Saul, And as she tries to get him out of the realm of danger, she drops him. And the Bible says when she drops him, he's crippled in both feet. The Bible says she gets him to a place of rescue. And in 2 Samuel chapter five, verse number five, the text says that David has been reigning in Hebron for seven years and six months, which makes then, since the Bible says in 2 Samuel four and four, Mephibosheth was five years old then, with David reigning seven and a half years, it makes Mephibosheth at least 12 and a half years of age. And in our text, chapter number nine, verse 12, the text says that Mephibosheth has a son by the name of Micah. So Mephibosheth at the time of our text is a grown man. Here is David sitting in the Oval Office thinking, and I believe, that the Spirit brought this to his mind. The Bible tells us in John 14, 26, that the Spirit will bring to our remembrance. And he remembered as he's sitting there, probably soliloquizing, that is asking himself the question. He's in a conversation with himself. And he asked this question as he sits in the office behind all of this glory. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness to for Jonathan's sake. Do you hear that question? Is there anyone? Do you hear in that question, echoes of mercy, whispers of love? Is there anyone? Do you hear in that question, the reverberation of redemption? Is there anyone, do you understand that with that question, there is the anticipation of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if anyone, if someone, if everyone should believe in him, no one would have to perish, but everyone would have everlasting life. Do you hear in that question? The thoughts of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, God is not slack concerning his promises as some people count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that anyone should perish but that all should come to repentance. I'm here to tell you tonight I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody there's no one that is unredeemable. God is able to save not only from the uttermost, but down to the guttermost. Is there anyone? I think we give up on people too soon. In fact, I think we give up on people because God doesn't give up. My God, he gave Jesus up so he wouldn't have to give us up. Do you not hear that great word in Romans eight thirty two? God who spared not his own son but gave him up for us all. Shall he not freely with him give us all things? I hear Paul, I see you Paul. There you are in Acts chapter eight. If anyone was unredeemable, you were. Because in Acts chapter eight, you are going about wreaking havoc, destroying the church. There you are, I see you. You were given orders in chapter eight, but oh, I can't give up on you because in chapter nine, you are taking orders. Lord, what will you have me to do? Chapter eight, you're putting people in jail for praising God, but in Acts chapter nine, here you are, Paul, preaching the same gospel because you have now become the church's number one public defender when you used to be the church's number one public enemy. I wanna tell you, every one of us lived in Acts chapter eight, but Acts chapter nine, is just one chapter, and God is not concerned about years, God is not concerned about time, Forget about the fact that you have a hopeless brother and sister who seems to be perishing without any hope in deep addiction, whatever the addiction is, in deep trouble, whatever the trouble is. Somebody that you've written off your list, God can't save that individual. That individual's been in that for so long. That individual is hopeless. That individual is a threat in society. That individual has come to ruin our family. I want to tell you that there is no way that person can be saved. I I know a God who's able to save in fact the blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary the blood that gives me strength from day to day it will never lose its power it reaches from the highest mountain and it flows from the lowest valley the blood that gives me strength from day to day it will never lose its power stay on the porch keep on fattening the calf prodigal mother prodigal daughter Those of you that have gone astray, if your parents stay on the porch because the Bible says when the boy came back home, he didn't, father didn't say to the servant, go and fatten the calf. That's going to take months. He said, go and kill the fattened calf. We've been fattening the calf in anticipation of this boy coming back home. And now we want to have instant celebration. So I want to tell you, stay on the porch and keep on fattening the calf. Your son, one of these days, even if you're dead, the prayer may be dead, but the prayer is still active around the throne. God has come to save that which is lost. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul? Saul, my archenemy. And this is a generational thing. Saul, the father, and then Jonathan, the son, and now Mephibosheth, the grandson. Three generations. And one would think, in. Th- that, well, David would not have any interest in the family of the one who tried to destroy him and kill him. But he understands that he has received grace. And because he's received grace, he must be a dispenser of grace. That's really why Augustine was so moved by uh, that great word in First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What have you not What have you received that causes you to boast? Do you have anything that you have not received? And if you've received everything you have, then why are you boasting? Hear me when I tell you, God has given us grace and we must dispense grace and grace has no expiration date on it. I don't care how far gone a person seems to be, grace never expires. Thanks be to God that he is still in the business of giving grace. I get concerned about our churches. I mean, all over the world. I think that we are incarcerated by a generational fallacy. And therefore black people feel like they have to hate white people because of what white people did to them three or four generations of slavery and all that stuff. I get so tired of that. I get so tired of that. And then white people will not blame Hispanics because they take all the jobs. And then we keep blaming, 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 blaming. Don't you understand that that grace takes and clears the slate and none of us have any reason to harbor any animosity toward anyone. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Get rid of the generation stuff. The world needs to see what real love is. And love, the only thing that, well, I'm not talking about what the world needs now is love, sweet love. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about agape love. I'm talking about unconditional love where there is crystal conciliation, conciliation because of Christ who brings a Davin Watkins and a Robert Smith together and it has nothing to do with epidermis. It has to do with a cardiological transformation. And when the heart is changed, skin is not the problem with race. Sin is a problem of race. Racism is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. And I tell you, when God fixes a sin for heart, you see that little black boy and that little white boy sitting next together? They're trying to show us. That's what real love is. Is there anyone still left in the house so it's so all that I can show God's kindness to? For Johnson's sake. That word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. It means God's loyal covenant love. God is not contractual. God is covenantal. Contractual means that God will say, if you do your 50%, I'll do my 50%. But covenantal means, if you don't do any percent, I'm going to do 100%. Morning by morning, new mercies you'll see regardless of what you have done and what you haven't done. Augustine says, it makes no difference how good you are. God's love is not mercurial. It's not like a a thermometer uh, where the mercury goes up and down depending upon the atmosphere conditions. No, 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 no. God's love is constant. As bad as you can be, God can't love you less. As good as you can be, God can't love you more. God simply loves you because God loves you. That's what you call real grace. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan's sake, because Jonathan is the son of the king. He's talking to himself and eventually he asks and the word gets out and the word comes back to him saying, yes, there is the former Chamberlain, the former housekeeper of Saul. He could uh, answer that question for you. And Ziba comes in. And David asked him the same question. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness to? And Zeba responds, yes, there is one. He is the son of Jonathan and he's crippled in both feet. Doesn't name him. Just gives him a dubious designation. He's crippled in both feet. Doesn't talk about his dignity in terms of being the son of the Prince Jonathan and the grandson of the fallen King Saul. No, talks about his condition. He's crippled in both feet. Brothers and sisters, I, I employ tonight, particularly our young people, don't allow yourself to be defined by your deficiency. Your dysfunctionality, some people say, well, you know, I come from a dysfunctional home. All of our homes are dysfunctional. <laughs> because we're all fallen. Don't let people define you by your crippleness. You've got to transcend that. You've got to overcome that. Jim Abbott played baseball for the Detroit Tigers, and he played ball for the Michigan Wolverines uh, in college. Went on to play for not only the Tigers, but the New York Yankees. Very incredible pitcher, left-handed. The amazing thing about him was that he pitched for several years, but he only had one hand, a nub on his right hand. He'd put the glove on his right hand and put the ball in the glove. When he got ready to pitch, throw it, and then put the glove back on his right hand in case a ball was take hit. And then if the ball was hit, he'd catch it, throw the glove off and throw it. And he pitched for many years with that deficiency. Beethoven had to cut the legs off a piano in order to hear the reverberating sounds of the piano so that he can continue to produce concertos and beautiful music pieces because he transcended over his disabilities, his dysfunctionalities, his deficiencies. And here is Fatty Crosby. Ah, she wrote, Many hymns. Some say up to 2,000 hymns. But she was blind. My favorite one is blessed assurance. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting. But she can't see. Looking above. She can't see. Filled with his goodness. Lost in his love. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture, she can't see. Now burst on my sight, she can't see. Angels descending, ring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. No, she didn't see with the optical elements, but she had a third eye known as the eye of faith, the inner eye, which enabled her to see what others could not see. That's why Helen Keller who also was not able, was asked, is there anything worse than being blind? She said, yes. Being able to see, but not having any vision. And what God wants to do, brothers and sisters, is to enable us to transcend our deficiencies, our dysfunctionalities, our problems that would hold us back. Wilma Rudolph was a great, great, great Olympic star. And she had won at this time more gold medals than anyone, any other woman had ever won. America, anyone else. But she had to do it with polio before the salt vaccine was ever discovered. She learned how to overcome her deficiencies. So whatever your deficiency is, and we have people in the Bible, all of them uh, have some deficiencies. but we keep on bringing up the deficiency. They're crippled in both feet. So even though, Jacob has been changed in terms of his name from Jacob, a planner, a trickster, a wrestler. Now his name is Israel. God fights, and we still call him Jacob. And here is Naaman in Second Kings chapter five, verse seventeen. He was a leper, but now his skin has been transformed so that it's just like a baby's skin, and he's made the vow in that seventeenth verse of Second uh, Kings chapter five: I will never worship any other god unless it's the God of Israel. And yes, there's Mary Magdalene in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. We keep calling her the woman out of whom Jesus cast out seven devils. But Jesus has made her the president of the women's missionary union. And she comes back and tells the disciples that the Lord said, meet me in Galilee. And yes, I know that Zacchaeus is that wee little man, that swindler that took advantage of his own race. But listen to what the Lord says about him in Luke 19 and 9. He is now a son of Israel. And I don't care what your deficiency is. God is able to take that deficiency and transform it and use you in spite of it. So stop living in the woods, W-U-L-D-S. I would do this. If I had a better pastor, I'd be a better member. If I had a better husband, I'd be a better wife. If I had a better parent, I'd be a better child. If I had a better teacher, I'd be a better student. Stop talking about what you would do and talk about by the grace of God, he's able to take me to where he wants me to go. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness to for? Jonathan's sake, yes, there's one, but he's crippled in both feet. He's the son of Jonathan. Where is he? David asks. Well, he's down in Lodibar. He is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel. And the Bible says that David fetched him. That's an old-fashioned word. David sit for him. David is acting as if he is trying to demonstrate what God does for us. Remember, Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. He can't come to David. David has to sin for him. And God always initiates contact. He pursues us. He sins for us. We can't come to him. We are crippled in both feet. In fact, people who sing... I found the Lord, that's false theology. You don't find the Lord. The Lord has never been lost. The Lord finds us. That's why the Lord said in Luke 19 and 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost and all of us were lost and he came all the way from heaven down to save a wretch like us. He sins for Mephibosheth and when Mephibosheth is put, if you will, into that kingly chariot and driven to Jerusalem and enters into the palace. The first thing that David says to him is, Mephibosheth, not you crippled boy. He says nothing about that. Mephibosheth, he gives him dignity. It's a short conversation. Mephibosheth, and the Bible says that Mephibosheth bows down in reverence and says, your servant, Mephibosheth, one word, your servants. And David says to him, fear not. Why would Mephibosheth be fearful? He had been living in anonymity, in obscurity. Uh, He didn't want to be found. He knew that he was the heir apparent to the throne. No doubt he would have been frightened, feeling, now I have been discovered. Now I will be eradicated. Now I will be exterminated. Now I will be killed. Fear not. What a word from God. The very first time the word fear not is found in the Bible, and I'm told that there are 365 fear nots in the Bible. If there are 365 fear nots in the Bible, there's a fear not for every day of the year. Fear not. There's that word in Genesis 15 and 1. And God said to Abram, fear not. Fear not. For I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. No, I'm not going to provide a shield for you. I'm going to be a shield. Which means that if anything gets to you, I have to move over and permit it. And whatever God permits, he has a purpose to promote. That's why Job has to ask for permission from God to touch. The uh, devil has to ask permission from God to touch Job, to get to Job. Because God has put Job under divine protective custody. So whatever's coming to your life, you may not understand it now, and certainly Joseph didn't understand it then, but life must be lived forward, but only understood backwards as of Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian would say. Time has to pass for you to understand that God permitted some things in order to promote his own cause. No matter how how potent and how painful and how penetratingly unbearable it was, one day you'll look back and you'll be able to say like Joseph said, some 13 years later, what you meant to me for evil? God meant to me for good. And Joseph didn't say that when his brother sold him into slavery. He didn't say that when Mrs. Potiphar put a phony molestation charge on him. He didn't say that when the butler and the baker forgot about him. He said that when he understood that God was saving his family so that he would have an audience with the Pharaoh and be able to say to the Pharaoh, there are going to be seven years of grain and seven years of famine. And if you save the grain during the bumper crop, then your family and that of the, the Egyptians will be able to get something to eat. And Joseph knew, that his brothers would come down to buy grain. And if they were saved, that would mean that Judah would be saved. If Judah would be saved, then Boaz could be born. If Boaz was born, then Obed would be born. If Obed was born, then Jesse would be born. If Jesse was born, then David would be born. And if David would be born, Jesus would be born. But you don't get that up front. You keep walking with the Lord. Stop trying to pry open the doors and pray open the door. Because if you keep prying open the door, the Lord might just let the door come open and you'll get what you want, but you won't want what you get and it's hard to unget what you got. So let the Lord open that door for you because some of us now are stuck with things that God never intended for us to have, but we kept on prying and prying. Let him open the door for you. Fear not, I've got your front. Fear not, I've got your back. I used to preach Psalm 23, and I'd read verse number six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow after me all the days of my life. And I had goodness on one side and mercy on the other, but it says shall follow after me. In other words, grace and mercy follows you. And when you stand before God, and he allows you to look at your path, and you know that your path was strong with sin and disobedience, and resistance to the divine but when you look back it's just as perfect and clean spotless and you wonder what happened and he will remind you I told you that goodness and mercy would follow after you picking up after you cleaning up after you sweeping up after you so much so when you stand before God you're dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne on Christ. The solid rock I stand all over the ground is sinking, saying, he's got your front, he's got your back, and then he's got the keys. And we're reminded by John in Revelation chapter one, verse 17 and 18, where John fell at his feet as if he was dead. And Jesus said, the glorified Christ said, fear not, John, I am he who was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I've got the keys of death and Hades. I've got the authority. Satan doesn't even have the key to his own house. I've got the key. Of death and hell so if he's got your front he's got your back and he's got the keys then why is it that we are fearful and David said to Mephibosheth fear not and the Bible says when he said this to him then David began to take and dispense the blessings to Mephibosheth right now all that your grandfather saw had is yours what your father Jonathan had is yours. In fact, you don't have to worry about harvesting your crops. The 15 sons of Ziba and the 20 grandsons and the servants of Ziba, they will all harvest your crops. And you will eat at my table, verse 7, 10, and 13. But then verse 11, not just as a guest, but as one of my own sons. Now, when you look at Mephibosheth, You see a person who has a 21st century understanding of grace. Do you know what he asks? How can you treat me a dead dog just like this? He could have asked, well, it's about time you discovered who I am. I'm the prince's son. I'm the king's grandson. I was wondering when my time was going to come. When the doom opportunity was going, oh, no, no, no. Why would you treat me like this? And I'm a, not just a dog, but I'm a dead dog of the canine community. And every time I look at the word dog in the Bible, it's always referenced pejoratively, negatively. First Samuel 17, verse 43 here is Goliath. And he looks at David coming to him and says, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks and staves? Jesus says in uh, Matthew 7 and 6, Don't cast that which is holy. The dogs? And Paul says in Philippians 3 and 2, watch out for the dogs. And Jesus says in Matthew 15 and 27 uh, that it's not right to give the children's bread, that is the Jews' bread, to dogs, the Gentiles. And Peter says in 2 Peter 2, the dog returns to its vomit. I'm just a dog, he said, but I'm just not a dog, I'm a dead dog. I wish, I wish, I wish, there would be such a revival in preaching all over the world that we stop saying to people, God saw something that was good in you. That's why he chose you. God saw something that he could use in you. That's why he chose you. Ah, because we want to lift up their self-esteem. No, 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 no. God didn't choose you because of what he saw in you. God chose you because he loved you. God chose you because he wanted to put something in you. Namely, put himself in you. Put his spirit in you. And none of us deserve grace. Grace is getting something from God for nothing. Salvation is not spelled D-O. It's spelled D-O-N-E. It's already done. You accept what God has already done for you. And because he loved you, 1 John four nineteen. you love him. My God, this man has gone from being an impoverished individual, to being a multi-millionaire just like that because of the grace dispensed to him through David the king. Well, we're reading, when we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1 and following, we read that David will have 18 sons and one daughter, that's 19. And we read that all of them eventually would come to the king's table when it was time for dinner, the dinner bell. We see grace all the way through this. We see grace in that Mephibosheth has been adopted. Adopted. Verse seven, verse 10, verse number 11, verse number 13, rather, 17 and 13, he eats at the king's table. But verse 11 says, like one of his sons, adopted. It's a wonderful thing to be adopted. But adoption costs something. It cost a lot of money to adopt someone. And Jesus adopted us, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without spot or without blemish. If you're gonna adopt someone, you've got to have a house that's safe enough and big enough for your adopted child, or adopted children. And when Jesus adopted you and adopted me, he had a house that qualified for that. He says, in my father's house, John 14, on many rooms and uh, if it were not so, I would have told you. When you get ready to adopt someone, you have to have a good ethical record. You can't be a pedophile. You can't have uh, committed some uh, heinous crime and when Jesus adopted us, he had a perfect record. I find no fault in him. He adopted us but he did something more than just adopt us in terms of identification. He gave us his genetic coding. He gave us his DNA. It's a wonderful thing to adopt children and there they're they are your children but the one thing about an adopted child, though that child is yours, that child does not have your chromosomes. That child does not have your nature. But when God adopts you, you began to be conformed to the image of His dear Son, and I know we don't look like Him right now. I have a son in the ministry. This is not a racial joke at all. It's just a fact. That boy was as dark as my suit—not anything funny—and uh, his wife was just as light as Jane Ellen. This is truth, just the truth. The African American couple, just the truth. And uh, he began to call his mother and said, "Mama, I think that the mailman has stayed around our house too long." He thought that his wife had been unloyal and unfaithful. She said, baby, no, 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 no. Have you checked behind the ear? When he looked behind the ear, he found out that the complexion behind the ear was much darker than the face. And finally the face caught up with behind the ear. And that boy is just as dark as my suit and just as dark as that because it took time for him to look like his daddy. Be patient with me. God's not through with me yet. When God's through with me, I shall come forth. As pure go, stop being so impatient with young people because they don't dress the way you want them to dress. Their hair is a little bit different than yours and their style and their taste, a little bit different. Stop judging them. Please understand that God is dealing with them in a metamorphous way. God is metamorphosizing them and changing them according to the image of his dear son. Not only that, brothers and sisters, I got to get out of here. This boy was broken, crippled in both feet. You got to understand that when you preach to people and you teach people, they're not whole. Everybody is broken. But God loves broken things and he can mend that which is broken in your life. I don't care what it is. Stop looking up and seeing the bottom of your shoes. Don't you understand that God can transform you and God can make you whole? Oh, I look at... Second Samuel chapter 21 verses seven through nine. Here are two men by the name of Mephibosheth. One is the son of Jonathan and the other is the son of Saul. The son of Saul named Mephibosheth is the uncle of Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. The son of Saul mm, is killed, Mephibosheth. But the son of Jonathan is bad because he's the son of the covenant son whose name is Jonathan. Same name. One is spared and one is killed. I'm grateful today that God has spared me because there was someone that he did not spare. I'm forgiven because uh, he was forsaken. I'm accepted. He was condemned. I'm alive and well. The spirit dwells within me because he died and he rose again. Oh, can you not hear the dinner bell going off? And David will reign in heaven for seven and a half years, but will reign in Jerusalem for 33 years, which means that over a period of time, all of David's sons, 18 of them, and his one daughter Tamar will make their way to the dinner table. There is Daniel, who will make his way to the dinner table. And there is Abnon, and there are Abdonijah, and there are Absalom, who make their way to the dinner table. And there is Nathan, who hears the dinner bell and makes his way to the dinner table. There is Nephag and Noga, who make their way to the dinner table. The dinner bell is rung and here come other sons of David. There is Shemua and Shephatiah. There are Shobab and Solomon who make their way to the dinner table. But then there's Japhia, Japhia who hears the dinner bell and he makes his way to the dinner table. But then there is Ithream, and there is Ibhar who will make their way to the dinner table. And there is Bathsheba, who hears the dinner bell and makes his way to the dinner table. But then there is Elida and Elashima. There is Eliphelet one and Eliphalet number two, who will make his way to the dinner table. But then there is the one long girl, by the name of Tamar, who makes her way to the dinner table. And what a sight it was to see them sitting in their places. But uh, one long chair remained unseated. One long place remained unoccupied. And you hear a sound of two feet. Yes, two sets of shoes. And when you look around, you see two men carrying Mephibosheth because he is crippled in both feet. Or, oh, yeah, they sit him down and he eats as one of the king's son. Oh yeah, and I can only imagine what he uh, looked like when he looked at the face of grace and saw David who remembered him in his anonymity, oh yeah. Who remembered him in his obscurity, oh yeah. Who remembered him down in Lodibar, oh yeah. That's a wonderful story and I thank God for that story. But I remember when I was in the lowlands of the sin of Lodibar, oh yeah. I was by myself on my way to hell and I couldn't come to God because I was crippled in both feet. But God came for me. Yes, he did. Forty-two generation, he came down to Bethlehem just for me. That man who was rich became poor; that I, who was poor, might be rich. There he is at Bethlehem of Judea, born in a borrowed stable oh yeah he was so poor that foxes had holes and the birds had nests but the son of man had nowhere to lay his head so poor that uh, he had to ask to use a borrowed upper room to celebrate the Lord's Supper so poor that he had to die on a borrowed cross so poor that he had to ride On a borrowed donkey, on the great. Palm Sunday afternoon so poor that they put him in a borrowed tomb. But you see anything that you borrow, if you're really honest, you're going to really pay it back. He borrowed the tomb of Joseph Ramathia on Friday. Borrowed it on Saturday. Borrowed it on Saturday night. But early Sunday morning, he gave it back with all power in his hand. One of these days, I'm going to see him and give him praise because he's worthy. He's worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Grace, 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 marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount Outport. There what the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, Grace that were pardoned and cleansed within. Grace, grace. God's grace, Grace that is greater than all our sin. And when we stand before him and see him face to face, we will give him glory. Throughout Caesar's age, it's when we've been there, ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun. Come on, son, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun.